0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper,
1: And I'm Erin Matte. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us. Our website as always is usefulidiotspodcast.com. Go there to support our show and also get plenty of bonus content.
0: Indeed, and we have a great show for you as always. And uh, I guess we should get started with the four basic food groups, right? Unless there's anything you'd like to share about your week, Aaron?
1: Afraid not, pretty boring. Fred
0: not, yeah. Uh, I have a little pop culture update.
1: Okay, sure. All we, right. we love that. Yes.
0: So, I don't get any uh, kickback from this, although I should. But I've really been enjoying this show called In the Dark. It's old. It's not that recent. It's about a blind woman who solves mysteries, and then gets involved in all sorts of hijinks. And it's on Netflix. And really, the the biggest appeal of it is that it has a really cute dog named Pretzel, but Pretzel's not in it enough. That's my big critique of it. It
1: uh, sounds gripping. Uh, it is, yeah. I crime want crime-solving blind want. woman with a cute dog. Yeah, um, I'll add that to my list of things I'll I'll never ever watch, but have them on a list.
0: Yeah, it's it's yeah. like right there. Every time I watch it, there's a line where I'm like, I cannot believe I'm watching something so corny, and yet, as Elizabeth Warren does, I persist.
1: Well, fair enough. Um, yeah. I haven't watched it show in a long time but i will make i will be making an exception for curbing enthusiasm which returns very soon
0: but uh interesting aside
1: interesting. from that unfortunately yeah. not the time for it but you, you uh, got to
0: watch some shows there and you have to have some things that you do that aren't based on the news or twitter fights
1: hard to imagine hard, hard to, to imagine.
0: imagine yeah
1: all right let's get to our four basic food groups for democrats suck we are going to turn to nancy pelosi now if you watch this week's monday morning you would have seen i think one of our all-time favorite clips where nancy pelosi went on cnn and declared that the people protesting her and other democrats calling for a ceasefire in gaza aka an end to the genocide supported by the us might be working for vladimir putin and she also wants them investigated and there was by the fbi FBI. and there was you know on top of this being like a a deranged conspiracy theory the, the additional irony is that Nancy Pelosi herself effectively is working for a foreign power because she, like so many other politicians, are bankrolled by the Israel lobby and, you know, every single year profess their fidelity to this foreign state uh, and will, are so devoted to it that are, they're even willing to justify a genocide and accuse critics of it basically of being foreign agents. Well, Nancy Pelosi is not done accusing her critics of that because when protesters, Continued to demonstrate outside Nancy Pelosi's home. She doubled down on that playbook of accusing them of being foreign agents, but she added a twist. This time, it's a new foreign adversary, China.
0: Oh, you spoiled! You gave it away.
2: Sorry.
3: Most of your constituents want to stop it. Stop the genocide. Stop the
1: holocaust.
4: Yeah. The Democrats yeah. want yeah. the ceasefire. The
1: Democrats
5: yeah.
1: want the ceasefire. The Democrats want the ceasefire. In case you missed that, like before closing the door for good, she uh, told her protesters, "Go back to China, where your headquarters is."
0: Yeah. Well, I like that Nancy is being, um, thorough. She's not Mm -hmm. just blaming Russia for creating a pro ceasefire movement. She's also including China. It shows you that she is, um, very hardworking and she doesn't just stop when she finds one culprit. She could have stopped at Putin, but she (laughs) found Chinese, uh, involvement as well.
1: You know, there's a really funny anecdote in Ryan Grimm's latest book about the squad, where he recalls the first time AOC met Nancy Pelosi. And obviously he's getting the story from AOC's camp. It's not AOC directly herself. And AOC recalls that the first time she met with Pelosi, Pelosi told her that the slogan abolish ICE, quote, was injected into American political discourse by the Russians and the Democrats needed to quash it. And then AOC left that meeting thinking, like, this is the leader of our party, and this is how uh, she thinks. And yes, the answer is yes. Nancy Pelosi has coined the phrase, all roads lead to Putin. And therefore, anything that interferes with the agenda of the Democratic Party establishment and their neocon allies is the work of Russia, whether it's people outside her house protesting uh, or it's people calling for a humane immigration system. It's all the work of Russians With a twist it's also the work of the chinese as well and that's why she says to this elderly protester outside her home go back to china which by the way sounds exactly like something that trump and his supporters would say
0: exactly yeah you
1: know so our uniparty really continues to impress
0: she's so disgusting the way she points her hands at these people i mean we we pointed this out on monday morning that in the clip in which she accuses um some of the people who are saying ceasefire now of being uh, spouting a, a Putin talking point, she referred to herself as a victim. And then she caught herself and said, <laughs> I was a victim uh, recipient of these yeah. kinds of protesters. So this is all about Nancy's struggle.
1: Even the talking points that Democrats could cling to in terms of how they could differentiate themselves from Trump. They can't even do anymore because they sound exactly like the most bigoted things trump would say like go back to china your headquarters are there or when when they would say that they're you know they want to treat undocumented immigrants humanely now biden is talking about shutting down the border which is definitely what trump would say so even on those issues where they could legitimately say before that they were different than trump now they can't anymore
0: right it's not only what trump would say but of course if biden does shut down the border changes it so that the president has the ability to do that and trump is the next president he's going to be shutting that border down all the time
1: absolutely absolutely he'll be continuing instead of biden continuing the trump agenda now trump will be continuing the biden trump agenda
0: exactly yeah wow such xenophobes and to be fair this comes from a rich tradition that starts from uh you know during the civil rights movement when Black radicals were portrayed as uh, not even radicals, just black civil rights organizers were portrayed as uh, in, in league with communist Russia. And then, of course, more recently, Susan Rice uh, claimed that some of the George Floyd protesters were Russian uh, or Russian uh, spies or on the Russian payroll. And Kamala Harris suggested that some of the people who were supporters of Colin Kaepernick were also Russian bots.
1: Yes, and you're watching one of the few shows that did not buy into all that Russia mania and, in fact, called it out for the scam that it was. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to toot our own horn here and you know, do a little touchdown ba- dance, but very few people in media, unfortunately, can lay claim to opposing all this Russia baiting, all this Russia mania from the start rather than just when it becomes so batshit crazy as Nancy Pelosi is demonstrating right now. Yeah.
0: Speaking of batshit crazy, here's what Nikki Haley had to say should be done in response to the killing of three service members on the Syrian Jordan border.
6: What would that mean in practice when you say Biden, you said Biden didn't do something? What was that something that he should have the been The very
3: first strike that hit, you punch and you punch back hard. What they should be doing is going after every ounce of production of those missiles wherever those missiles are you take that out you this keep doing you does take out the training sites it? you go
6: and you but does that risk escalating a war? does, these does that
3: mean striking Iran directly it means striking the resources that are allowing them to hurt our troops that's what you're doing it's not they're going after the, the, they're they're, the, they're backed by Iran Iran absolutely. says that they're not declaring the shots but Iran's training them they're providing intelligence they're providing weapons. And this goes there would be no Hamas without Iran Hezbollah without Iran or Houthis without Iran but yes, striking you're going, Iran is a really big escalation. You go after wherever those missiles are, the production, wherever it is in Iraq and Syria, you take that out. Wherever it is in Lebanon that they're doing that, you take that out. You go after the leaders making the decisions. It's not after Iran the country. It's after the people who are making these decisions. When Soleimani was was assassinated, it sent a chill up their spine. They literally, it took their breath out. You have to be strategic. It's not starting war. It's actually preventing war.
0: Okay, so there she is, citing the killing, the assassination of Soleimani, which most people considered extremely reckless, and uh, this was, of course, uh, done under Trump. And she claims that Trump is an unhinged maniac, which he is, and that was one of the unhinged, maniacal things that he did. Soleimani, uh, the Iranian general, who I have to always point out was extremely handsome. You um, do point
1: that out every single time. I do. Yeah. <laughs> you you never just, fail. To I, I that can't.
0: Out. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he, uh, I, I got to, I have to. It's, it's, it's like the elephant in the room. He shouldn't have been killed for other reasons, but it also happened to be a, a major loss cosmetically. To the handsome but, community, uh, right?
3: Yeah.
0: To the what handsome community? Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: Um, but here she is, and lest you think this is a one-off and that she was speaking kind of impulsively and uh, has learned to not basically call for war with Iran, which somehow she's saying that striking Iran would not uh, lead to war. It would prevent war. I'm not sure how she thinks that would happen. But here she is making this point again on Fox News.
6: You're saying now's the time to
3: hit Iran. Now's the time to hit their leaders. It's different. Don't go and bomb the country. What about their infrastructure? The infrastructure in Iraq and Syria. You start with that first. You do the sanctions and you take out a couple of their leaders. That's the way in their country. In their, if they're in their country or you do like Soleimani when they left the country, you figure out where they are. Our special operations can do that. And then you take them out. That will send a message. We've got to do this immediately.
0: Take out some leaders here and there.
1: So in the first clip, it sounded like she didn't want to hit them directly in Iran, but when she shipped over to Fox News, which is more, you know, even more uh, outwardly pro-war than I guess CNBC, uh, she was, yeah, take them out inside their own country. Sure, why not?
0: Yeah, why not? or outside, wherever. Yeah. Citing Soleimani again. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, first of all, after the U.S. killed Soleimani, that did lead to a massive increase in uh, attacks on U.S. forces, including an attack on a U.S. base in Iraq, where soldiers there suffered serious injuries. She she omits that because, of course, right. these politicians don't care about U.S. soldiers, as Biden just demonstrated by presiding over the uh, deaths of three of them. Uh, and the reason they were killed is because he's supporting the mass murder campaign in Gaza and also won't withdraw US forces from Iraq and Syria, even though they're not wanted there. But prior to October 7th, for like many months before, there was actually an undeclared truce and there were no attacks on US forces. But after October 7th, those attacks resumed. And in fact, during, remember there was that one week when we, there was like a pause of the Gaza genocide. Mm -hmm. When that happened, there were no attacks on US forces either. So all these militia groups in the region respected the ceasefire. And only when the mass murder of Palestinians resumed, that's when these groups resume their attacks on U.S. forces. Right. So from Biden to Nikki Haley, they all want to keep U.S. forces there sitting ducks to def- enforce the genocide of Gaza and also continue stealing Syria's oil and wheat, which is the point of the U.S. force uh, inside Syria. The official reason is that we're fighting ISIS. But, you know, as I've reported, the Pentagon's own documents show there's no basically fighting going on at all between the U.S. and ISIS. Uh, other groups are doing that. The U.S. is simply there to steal Syria's oil, as Donald Trump very helpfully pointed admitted, out right. when uh, when his own advisors ignored his uh, order to withdraw troops. So he admitted we're there to take the oil.
0: Right, and of course they want to enforce U.S. hegemony. So that's another perk of having forces there.
1: Uh, many perks. Many perks, perks, except for the people of the region and the U.S. forces who lose their lives as a result.
0: Exactly. So if you're a service member, not so great. If you're a Palestinian, definitely not so great. But besides that, um, hey, other people are reaping benefits, so there's that.
1: For Isn't That Weird, let's turn to uh, the Taylor Swift discourse. I don't know why, but Republicans have been increasingly shouting the alarm about Taylor Swift. They believe she's going to be a part of a uh, Biden re-election campaign. Uh, and maybe that's true. But even before anything's been announced, they're basically sounding the alarm. And one reason for their alarm is that Taylor Swift is currently dating a member of the Kansas City Chiefs, which are playing very soon in the Super Bowl. And the growing theories that this relationship that Swift is in with Travis Kelsey, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs player, is part of a psyop to basically infiltrate. The NFL audience and convince people to vote for Joe Biden. So here is a host
5: so with one You got, one the, Ameri- you got the,
0: the musical community and the sports community being infiltrated
5: exactly. simultaneously.
0: Exactly. Wow. Exactly. It's a double pronged, yeah. two pronged approach. Okay.
1: So here is a host with one American news. That's a that's a right wing network. Uh laying way out way to the
4: right of Fox News.
1: Well, yeah, way, way to the right of Fox News, even uh laying out her theory on what Taylor Swift is up to.
4: America's pop star celebrity sweetheart joins forces with a top dog in the NFL playing for the team that's going to the Super Bowl. I mean, let's be real here. This is bread and circuses on steroids. Major League Sports in and of itself is nothing but a PSYOP. Get kids plugged into the cycle of going to public indoctrination camps, playing sports for their school, and going to games. Many end up devoting their entire childhood to competing in various sports. Only to be cut from the team at which point they become brainwashed into supporting professional teams because they know their dreams of becoming a pro athlete will probably never happen so then they become obsessed with some grown man who gets paid millions of dollars every year to throw a ball around while promoting poison death shots and child slave labor through various brand deals and endorsements so sad imagine being so brainwashed by sports you actually show up to your team stadium to shovel snow for free So you can watch a bunch of grown men who are overpaid tackle each other. (laughs) Seriously though, trudging through three feet of snow amid a massive blizzard just to watch a game? Yeah, sorry, you couldn't pay me to do that. Just imagine for a moment if people were as dedicated to Jesus as they are professional sports. I think the country might look pretty different if that were the case. But sadly, as we know, it's not. And perhaps that's why we're witnessing the crumbling and degradation of our once great nation. Instead, all we seem to care about are the celebrities and athletes propped up by the Hollywood elites in this ongoing theater, this fake, carefully crafted show that the masses have been hypnotized by and can't seem to turn off.
1: You know what? I got to say, a lot of good points in there. Um, you know, if you watch *Manufacturing Consent*, the the movie about Noam Chomsky, there's a there's a little scene in there where he talks about the role of sports in society, and his line is that sports promotes irrational attitudes of some of submission to authority and group cohesion and you know this Ohan host coming at it from a different angle because of taylor swift and her presumed support for biden is kind of making a similar point <laughs> so i know. Uh, you know yeah
0: that's what struck me i was kind of like this sounds almost marxist
1: yeah like it almost a like marxist
0: up. critique yeah
1: yeah uh, and then she says you know if only people spent as much time, you know, on the teachings of Jesus as they do to sports, would we'd be a better country? I gotta say, I agree with that too. Because if you read Jesus, he talks about peace and harmony and treating everybody as equal. Um, yeah, he cares which about also the poor. Is, also, is very Marxist or socialist, right, like exactly. whatever you want to call it. Uh, I don't think maybe those this are the woman's teachings.
0: a liberation theologian.
1: Who knows? Who knows? So you know, um it's interesting. Sometimes we can find common ground with our right wing counterparts, even if yeah. we come at it from for different reasons,
0: I find sports very boring, especially football. So I'm kind of with her. Maybe I should uh, send my resume over to OAN. It <laughs> probably pay well. We'd, well. Be
1: to, we'd be sorry to lose you, you sluttyts, but we'd understand, Katie. We'd, we'd support you in your new career path.
0: I could probably balance both. I could juggle.
1: Yes, yes. Well, unless
0: they have an an exclusive.
1: <laughs> um, well, here's more on on this whole uh, Taylor Swift response campaign. Um, This is uh, a a conservative pundit named Jack Posobiec, who uh, I got to say, you know, I do sometimes when I see his name pop up, he says, I agree with him when he comes to opposing the Ukraine proxy war. Um, I totally disagree with him on most other things. But here he is also talking about the potential threat of Taylor Swift. But don't worry, conservatives. There's hope because there are other celebrities that you have on your side.
6: Change it to, and, and by the way, we can do this as well. We don't have a Taylor Swift on our side, but you know who we have? We have Kid Rock, we have Ted Nugent, we have influencers, right? We have Not all you. these people, John Voight, we have people that can come out and use their audiences, number one. And, and, and I want an army of Scott Presslers at every Kid Rock event and every Ted Nugent event. And I hope, by the way, and I, I need to talk to those guys about this because I've got this idea that maybe we even ask them, you guys mind doing a little tour later this year? Are you doing anything this fall? And I don't know where, but maybe I could think of a couple of states, like, I don't know, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, to have them running around Nevada. And Nevada, of course, Nevada, please. Yes, of course, right here.
1: Hear that, Swifties? Uh, you may have Taylor Swift on your side. And I'm, I'm not even sure if that's true, that Taylor Swift will endorse Joe Biden. But if right. she does, don't worry, uh, conservatives, because you have Ted Nugent. You have Kid Rock and you have John Voigt, and they're coming to your town.
0: Yeah. I mean, Ted Nugent, I always find it interesting that conservatives like to claim him because he did soil himself to get out of serving in the military. He soiled himself during an army exam.
1: I did not know that about yeah. Ted Nugent. I did not oh, yeah. know that.
0: Renaissance man.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah
0: well, for isn't that terrible? Let's just go straight to the videotape.
3: Seven Eleven. A Philadelphia woman is now facing federal charges for her unruly behavior on a Frontier Airlines flight from Florida. Mm. I'm ready to
5: I'm be over here. Oh my. Sorry, everybody. Up. Are you serious? Oh.
3: Are you- oh. Okay, oh. Anyway. Federal officials identified the woman as 6-year-old Dulce Huertas. The complaint claims Huertas was aggressive on the flight back to Philly from Orlando in November demanding to use the bathroom. When she was told to stay seated, the complaint says she pulled down her pants, as you see in the video, yeah. exposing herself to children nearby and she handled business that way.
1: Well, there you go. What has happened? Well, they say that she had two alcoholic drinks before the incident. I don't know how big they were. She is charged with uh, interference with flight crew members, simple assault, and indecent exposure. And she faces a maximum sentence, what, of 21 years in prison and a $350,000 fine. Wow.
0: For for people not watching, the co-host on that does a very funny facial expression at the end where he just kind of says, like, opens his mouth and looks like he's going to say shit or something, but he doesn't. doesn't Yeah, Yeah. He was very, very impacted by that story. But Aaron, what do you have to say about this? Because I know you have some strong opinions on on on-flight drinking.
1: Well, I want to address those who are close watchers of useful idiots who now might be suspecting me of being behind this incident. Because if you watch the show, you'll know the last week I sparked... Some controversy, I believe, in the split its community, by coming out against drinking on planes. I said I think it's a bad idea, and lo and behold, now we have uh, you know Exhibit A for why that should not be exhibit happening. B. Woman, exhibit B, uh, Exhibit B, Exhibit B for why that should not be happening. Uh, with uh, I do, so I just want to tell you right now, I was not behind this incident. I did not right. stage this incident to prove my point. Not a uh, false this, flag. This is not a false flag. This is not a psyop. I had nothing to do with that woman. I was not dressed up as that woman. Uh, That's a real person as far as I know. And yeah, it just proves my point. Why why should we have alcohol on flights? It only leads to incidents like this. And I have sympathy for anyone who really has to use the bathroom. You know, we've all been there before. But I blame alcohol for this. If not for the alcohol, I don't think we'd have seen that viral video.
0: Right, of that woman exposing herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever partaken in alcohol on a flight?
1: I'm sure I have. But, uh, you know. So I say from experience, I just don't think we need it. Right,
0: as someone who is I, right, have you been no. exposed to not? I don't mean exposed like we just saw, but have you been subjected to improper behavior on the parts of on the part of others on flights? Or is oh, this yeah, just a rational true. thing, or do you no, have PTSD from something in particular? No, no,
1: no, I've definitely been on flights where just some guys are way too drunk and they're annoying, they're loud, and yeah. they're obnoxious, and they harass people, they harass the flight attendants, they harass other passengers. It's just you know, it's not fun and. Yeah. Uh, Some people just should not be drinking, period, and certainly should not be drinking on planes.
0: Right. Yeah. Just say no, guys. All right. Well, uh, that's been your four basic food groups. Cheers.
1: (laughs) Well, this week we have another Useful Idiots doubleheader. We are joined by two guests. Up first is Chris Gunnis. He is the former spokesperson for UNRWA. And that is the U.N. agency serving Palestinian refugees. And UNRWA now is at the center of a new manufactured controversy by Israel and its allies, because just as the International Court of Justice handed down their ruling that there are plausible grounds to investigate Israel for genocide, Israel all of a sudden came out, literally simultaneously, with a claim that uh, a very small number of staffers of UNRWA, the Palestinian refugee agency at the United Nations, were involved on October 7th. And the US and a series of allies, including uh, Germany and Canada, announced that they would be pausing UNRWA in response, uh, which is a huge scandal because this agency provides essential services to Palestinian refugees, who of course right now are enduring a genocide. And the allegation that UNRWA staffers were involved in October 7th, had no concrete evidence to support it. Israel claimed that the the intelligence it developed about these staffers came from interrogations, which means torture. But what this served was basically helping to distract from the issue at hand, which was the ICJ ruling that there are plausible grounds to investigate Israel for genocide and that Israel should stop blocking aid to Gaza. And, of course, the U.S. media went along with this. There were big stories in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal article was written by a former Israeli soldier who was caught liking posts on social media that were mocking the deaths of Palestinians in Gaza. Just to give you a window into how serious media coverage of this was. And House Republicans followed suit by holding a hearing in Congress on why UNRWA should be defunded. So to discuss that, we're very happy to be joined by Chris Gunnis. He is a former spokesperson for UNRWA, knows the agency very well, and is very familiar with all the Israeli-led attacks on UNRWA that have been going on for a very, very long time, not just during this Gaza genocide. So here is Chris Gunnis. Chris Gunnis, thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Nice to meet you. Your reaction to this move by the US and its allies embracing these unsupported Israeli allegations that a handful of UNRWA staffers were involved on October 7th and cutting off funding to UNRWA?
5: I have to be honest and say more in sadness than in anger, it does feel like a double betrayal. It's certainly betrayal by the 12, now 13 staff members who allegedly, and I use the word allegedly advisedly, um, have done these terrible things. I mean, we don't know and I'm not clear that this information has been provided to UNRWA, whether these people actually were involved. If they were, then it's a betrayal of the 13,000 really extraordinary humanitarians, many of whom I know very well and have seen them all in action in Gaza. They feel very betrayed because their salaries are at risk, the food, the water, the electricity, the mattresses, the, the services they provide to what are now some of the most desperate fragile, vulnerable people on the planet, that is now all at risk. So you know, it's a betrayal by those staff members and the, the ones that, the ones who allegedly conducted these these actions. It's the, the staff who are left behind to do the work, they feel very, very betrayed. And to be clear, these other people are now ex-staff members. So UNRWA has sacked them, invoking um, a part of the UNRWA constitution, as it were, which says that in the interests of the agency, the Commissioner General, the Executive Director, or whatever you want to call him, has has the authority to do this. But it's a betrayal by the donors. And let's be clear about this. This is not good donorship. UNRWA is managed by the donor community led by the United States, and the management processes which have been set up over, you know, UNRWA is 73 years old. It began operations on the 1st of May, um, 1950. And we, UNRWA has worked tirelessly With the donor community who manage UNRWA through their management, um, the ADCOM, as it's called, is this management body um, led by the Americans as the biggest donor. And you know, the US government audit office audited, they did a root and branch audit of UNRWA in 2019. All of these, the textbooks which have proved so problematic apparently, staff neutrality, all that stuff was gone through with tooth comb. And you know, America carried on funding UNRWA to the tune of 350 million. So when you hear The donor community not give any reason why they're doing this, yet they defund, not saying to UNRWA what UNRWA has to do to bring back this defunding. You do begin to feel it's a political plot. It's certainly not good donorship. I would like to know the base upon which the British and the French and the others made this decision. What was in this dossier? Because I tell you, we in Britain are used to dodgy dossiers, you know, Tony Blair. And all of that lot, you know, during the as a as a pretext of the Iraq War. You know, we were told this there was this dossier with all this intelligent information, you know, Saddam Hussein could hit London within 45 minutes. It all turned out to be a complete fiction. And the fact that UNRW has been handed a list of names, information, a bit of information, but no evidence, the fact that Anthony Blinken is quoted today saying America hasn't not has not been able independently to confirm or verify this dossier which was, by the way, handed over to the New York Times, UNR not been given it, UNRWA's never been given it. You know, it's, it's and, and he's saying, oh, it's very, very credible, but, oh, we haven't verified it. Well, how can you say it's very, very credible if you haven't verified it? I mean, it stinks to high heaven. I mean, as I say, I say this more in, in, in sadness than in anger. It smacks of bad donorship, It smacks of poor management. These, you know, these failures, if they are failures, just, you know, a few bad apples, that is as much the responsibility of the donor community led by the United States. And it's, it's really very sad to, to see how we've arrived at the state of affairs.
0: What do you think the appropriate response would have been? What response would you have liked to have seen to these, alleged, to these allegations?
5: The response that's been there for decades, and that is where there are credible reports, evidence of violations of neutrality, they are put before UNRWA. UNRWA has systems developed with our major donors, particularly the United States. They are investigated properly. We come back to our donors. We tell them what the problem is. If it's clear that there are um, credible, if there's proper evidence of violations, staff are disciplined up to and including dismissal. And you know that has been what it's that's what it's been like for for decades, and it's what it's been like. You know, recently audited by the American. Um, GAO. So, you know, that's the appropriate response. It's give us the evidence if it's credible. And there's loads of stuff floating around, you know, on the internet about what happened and blah, blah. If it's credible evidence, let's have it. UNRWA will investigate. And it's always done that to the satisfaction of all its donors, which is why they've continued to fund UNRWA for the last 73 years. You know, it's that that's the appropriate response. But we didn't get that appropriate response from the donors. We got what feels like a political onslaught Coordinated, and that's why we say you know this has to change. I hope, as a result of this, the Arab donors will realise that Western governments have this political ha- stranglehold over this lifeline to the Palestinians, and I hope that Arab countries um, will step forward. You know, if you look at OPEC profits from two thousand and twenty-two, um, it was eight hundred and eighty-eight billion dollars. Well, you know, UNRWA's budget is one point about one point five billion, and that's. of OPEC's profits in 2022. OPEC could solve this problem in a heartbeat, in in a nanosecond. So I'd like to see, you know, one of the good things that come out of this on the subject of good donorship, it'd be great to see some Arab countries come forward and to loosen this Western stranglehold over UNRWA because, you know, we've got to see some good donorship. We've got to see some responsible donorship because with this attack, you know, that was a failure of donorship. Talk to us a bit about. What UNRWA
1: does, the services it provides to Palestinians, uh, not just in Gaza but other regions where Palestinian refugees live, and and it, its significance for Palestinian identity and existence.
5: Yeah. So, so look, I think it's good for your audience, um, a general audience, to think of UNRWA more as a government than an aid organization. So UNRWA works in Syria, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Gaza, and the West Bank. And it has core programs, and those core, core, core programs are education, health, relief, and social services. In education, UNRWA has 706 schools. UNRWA has 550,000 students. I mean, this is as big as the education department, bigger than some UN member states. Um, UNRWA, Seven million patient visits to UNRWA's health clinics in a year. Um, five, sorry, four hundred thousand of some of the most um, disadvantaged people, um, people with special needs, mental health issues, the disa- you know whatever, whatever it may be. There are four hundred thousand of those across the Middle East who come to UNRWA for services, relief and social services. They call it social protection. One point seven million people come to UNRWA for food aid. One point two million of those are in Gaza. So you know there's a huge, almost quasi-governmental function, and UNRWA does that as its bread and butter, but when terrible things happen, wars and you know refugee flows, things go go wrong like they did in Gaza, UNRWA has to keep these call cool services ticking over because children in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon still need to be educated just because there's you know an onslaught on Gaza. So UNRWA has to keep all of this going, so funding is needed for that. But then there's a massive spike in the need for funding in Gaza. Um, because suddenly there's a huge increase in need. So, pretty much 2.3 million people in Gaza, they all need support from UNRWA. Um, the World Health Organization, or is it the World Food Program, is now saying that there's a risk that more people will die of starvation in Gaza than under these Israeli bombs. So, you know, there's a huge, huge need. There's the core services, and then there's the emergency service. And, you know, frankly, in, UNRWA has no strategic reserve. Right. So that there is running, you know, the tanks on empty and UNRWA is desperately trying to tick over and UNRWA can tick over really for another few weeks. And then it stops. The aid pipeline is very vulnerable. And then, you know, the unimaginable starts to happen. People really do start to die of starvation. Um, already you have a situation where operations are taking place without anesthetic women giving birth. You know, without proper condition without proper health conditions, I mean it's really unthinkable and what have these Western governments done? They've said that that kind of work you know it's the women coming in the newly born, it's the pregnant mothers, it's the kids with ninety five percent burns, you know gasping their last gasp, desperate for water you know those are the sorts of people um whose aid is now under under threat and it's 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 utterly heartbreaking
0: these countries have decided to basically in defunding UNRWA they're sentencing an increased number of people to death right I mean there's kind of no question about that
5: I mean that's a very stark and probably realistic way of putting it I'm afraid I prefer to see the glass half full and I have to pray that that scenario does not materialize because that is unthinkable the idea that a group of western donors driven by a clearly political um, Israeli agenda, we need to perhaps unpack that agenda later on, um, that the Western donors driven by that um, could, you know, be in a situation where they, on a podcast like you, two reasonable people asking reasonable questions based on reality, are asking, are they basically complicit in the starvation of a population in the Middle East? I mean, that's that's what I call the definition of bad donorship, And it's led by the Americans, they're UNRWA's biggest donor, they are you know they are leading the donor community. UNRWA is managed by these people, so any failure—and let's face it—it's twelve or thirteen bad apples in a staff of thirteen thousand. That's thirteen thousand just in Gaza, by the way. Um, so you know it's a tiny, tiny percentage—about one thousand point zero 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 one, I think it is. Um, yeah. So you know it is—it is, it is a as, as, as you know, put like that, exactly. it's terrifying, and let's hope it doesn't happen.
0: So I I wanted you to respond to a statement by um, Netanyahu, who said on Wednesday, the time has come for the international community and the UN itself to understand that UNRWA's mission must be ended. UNRWA is perpetuating itself. It seeks to preserve the issue of Palestinian refugees.
5: And I think it's time that the international community and the UN itself understand that UNRWA's mission has to end. UNRWA is self-perpetuating. It is self-perpetuating also uh, in its the desire to keep alive the, refu- the Palestinian refugee issue. Right, so before I unpack that, can I just say that your audience needs to get head around the fact that the state which is lobbying thousands of munitions every day, including 2,000-pound bombs, is accusing is accusing an unarmed refugee agency of perpetuating the conflict. So let's use that as the frame for this answer. Um, UNRWA registers the children of refugees, which is standard best practice amongst refugee agencies, the other UN refugee refugee agency, UNHCR. Um, So when, for example, a child is born to refugees, Afghan refugees in Pakistan, in UNHCR-administered camps or under the auspices of UNHCR, those children registered under the principle of family unity. And the same is true with UNRWA, that when children are born to UNRWA refugees, they're also registered. And with that registration card, they become eligible if they need them, if they meet the criteria for UNRWA services. The idea, which is peddled by many Israelis, including, as you quote last night, um, from Mr. Netanyahu last night, Um, It's peddled that, you know, there's this unique organization that has this political vendetta against Israel and is uniquely registering refugees and, you know, therefore it's perpetuating the conflict. That is simply a deliberate misunderstanding, and misreading, both of international law and refugee practice, um, but also, you know, what UNRWA is about. Um, UNRWA wants nothing more than to go out of business. And UNRWA goes out of business when the refugees are granted full dignity, human development, prosperity, justice and accountability, and their rights, both individual and collective, are recognised and implemented and guaranteed in the context of a just and durable solution. Now, I, as an outsider, am not saying what that solution is. Two state, one state, you know, you decide it's not. But can the Palestinians at least be asked? And can we at least find out, which there's extreme you know, scepticism over, whether Israeli leaders actually are prepared to give the Palestinians that state? Because from what we know of Mr Netanyahu, there's the, the leaked um, transcript of, or memo of something said in the meeting. I mean, it, there are, and he's also said it publicly, um, You know about whether Mr Netanyahu is prepared to allow the Palestinians to have the right to that just and durable solution, because it appears that it's the Israeli side that are perpetuating the conflict by not vouchsafing and granting to the Palestinians that right to a just and durable solution. And, you know, even
1: prior to this new manufactured controversy, Israeli officials have been open about their plans to try to destroy yeah. Gaza. Uh, last month, or sorry, uh, in late December 2023, There was a report in Israel that the foreign ministry had drawn up a plan to permanently shutter UNRWA whenever the Israeli assault on Gaza ended. And the following month, in early January, uh, there's a former Israeli foreign ministry official named Noga Arbel, who said, "Quote: It will be impossible to win the war if we do not destroy UNRWA, and this destruction must begin immediately."
5: And
1: she went on, they must be abandoned or they must go to hell. Chris, you know, as a former spokesperson for UNRWA, what has your experience been personally uh, when it comes to Israeli antagonism toward your organization? Oh, I mean,
5: I am the lightning rod for every hate crime the international Zionist organizations have ever, ever sort of wanted to throw at the UN. Congratulations. the (laughs) The good news about this, though, is that the Israelis tend to hit the nuclear button immediately And once they've hit the nuclear button, there's nothing worse they can throw at you. So, you know, I had Ron of the Israeli ambassador, calling on Ban Ki-moon to sack me because obviously I'm a raving anti-Semite, I'm a Nazi, I'm a blah, blah. You know, and actually once that's been said of you, once you've got over it, it's like, well, if that's it, you know, we can now get on with life. So, I mean, it was very unpleasant. I mean, I was once PNG'd by Netanyahu's office and blah, blah. But I mean, to be honest, that's all a distraction. It's all sort of ad hominem arguments. It's all, you know, it's really, that's not, that's not the point um but to get back to this whole thing of destroying unra um two issues here one practical and and one in a sense political and 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 legal um if israel wants to get rid of unra and get something else you know create another organization it's got very little time let's be honest i mean time is of the essence in gaza unra employs 13000 people so you'd have to employ 13000 new people you'd have to put job adverts in newspapers websites. There are now 2.3 million people in Gaza who desperately need jobs. There was 46.9% unemployment in Gaza. It's now probably total unemployment. So there'd be probably 2 million application forms sent to UNRWA, maybe less because I guess children, children won't apply. UNRWA's HR department have sought through this sort of, you know, million, job applications sort out those they want to do the first interview then do the interviews then do the second interview then on on board the thirteen thousand then they'd have to do sort of security screening on those thirty thousand then they'd have to give them neutrality training because let's be clear here, neutrality frameworks and training is absolutely part of the lifeblood of UNRWA. Isn't, Israel doesn't realize that the best partner could have for neutrality in Gaza is UNRWA. But, you know, um, and, and by the way, those um, staff people in Gaza, um, the UNRWA workers in Gaza get paid much, much less than even the local workers for WFP, WHO, OCHA, you know, and all the others. So, you know, be careful donors or, and Israel, what they wish for, though Israel, of course, won't pay the bill, but it's gonna, it's gonna take a long time to reconstitute it. And it's gonna cost an awful lot more. And I would say it's completely impracticable. This is by sort of armchair humanitarians sitting around in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Washington, London. I dunno, they've obviously never been to Gaza and see what UNRWA actually does. So that's, you know, that's one practical thing about replace UNRWA, get rid of UNRWA, you know, let's do, you know, and by the way, if UNRWA doesn't do it, um, maybe the occupying power might be asked to do it. Um, you know, which again, Israel disputes that it is the occupying power, but it, you know, the idea at the moment, are occupying huge swathes of guards. And if anybody is gonna be able to deliver humanitarian supplies, it's gonna to have to be the IDF, not that I would think that many people would trust the IDF. Um, so that's all the practical stuff. On the um, political stuff, there is this sort of crazy right-wing sort of Zionist fantasy in a way, that if you get rid of UNRWA, you magically get rid of six million refugees. Um, which is a bit like saying, if you get rid of Oxfam, you get rid of hungry people and poor people. I mean, it's just uh, it's kind of, it's just odd. And um, it's also complete complete um, misreading of international law, um, because if you did get rid of UNRWA, um, first of all, Israel, if it wants to get rid of UNRWA, would have to go to the General Assembly, which hands down UNRWA's mandate. UNRWA is a so-called subsidiary organ of the General Assembly. So Israel would have to go to the General Assembly, um, talk to all the nearly 200 delegations and say, we want to change UNRWA's mandate, want to abolish it, you know, whatever it may be. And by the way, UNRWA does work in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and the West Bank as well. So, you know, they want to abolish UNRWA there too, not sure. But they'd have to have that discussion with their um, interlocutors in the General Assembly. And then they'd have to um, somehow, um, you know, work out how to have this transition. I mean, it's politically impractical. And even if they got rid of UNRWA, the refugees remain human beings with inalienable rights rights to human development, rights both collective and individual, to a just and durable solution to their plight. And you can't get some far-right cabinet in Israel just deciding to airbrush out of history all of these people, plus the international protection mechanism which grants them the protection and their rights. I mean, that isn't how international law works at all. And although Israel has managed to, I think, based on a pretty dodgy dossier, um hoodwink um the main donors of UNRWA into defunding, the people that UNRWA serves, and um, the frameworks, the laws um, on which that work is based cannot get wished away by Mr. Ben Gavir and Mr. Schmotris and all these people. It doesn't, unfortunately they have to understand that international law doesn't work like that. I mean when you heard the so-called victory conference, whatever it was called in Jerusalem a few nights ago, I mean, I don't think People there really understand too much about the international humanitarian frameworks and laws that underpin the humanitarian work of the United Nations, sadly.
1: One thing we have to say about these allegations made against this, you know, tiny fraction of UNRWA staffers, according to Axios, Israeli officials say that most of their so-called intelligence about these UNRWA staffers, and by the way, UNRWA says some of these people aren't even actually staffers of UNRWA and that a few of them are even dead, but let's say- Yeah, three of them are either
5: missing or dead.
1: Yeah. 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 But uh, Axios reported that according to Israeli intelligence officials, most of their so-called intelligence about UNRWA came from interrogations.
5: Right. So anybody, torture. Anybody familiar right. which, with which, Israeli practice which, knows that's torture. Let's, yeah. let's talk about history. I mean, you read the amnesty reports, read the best-selling reports, read lots of very and wonderful Israeli human rights organizations who have done investigations, or you know, some of the credible organizations on the world. I mean, I don't have Accusations and evidence that these people have been tortured, but I mean, there are seven hundred and th- there, are, there are seven thousand five hundred Palestinians in Israeli detention, all un- held under this thing called admin detention, administrative detention, which basically means they can arrest you because they think you're guilty and renew it every six months. And there are plenty of evidence of very, very bad things that happen to Palestinians. So you know, it's it'll be interesting to find out under what basis. I mean, the Red Cross have not had access. Um, as far as i can understand so it'd be interesting to see you know what for example the red cross um, makes of this but in any case i mean you know the israelis handed over this dossier to the new york times um before they handed it over well no they haven't no one's by the way no one's handed it over to UNRWA. so i was talking to friends in UNRWA today and they said no it wasn't we, we we never got it so um i think they've managed to obtain it Possib- I don't know where from, possibly from journalists. I mean, Sky News have got it. And if you read the Sky News report, it's really interesting. They say, um, we don't see that this is very compelling. And a lot of the stuff in it doesn't relate to UNRWA at all. So the question I think needs to be bounced back to the Western donors, which is, um, on what did you base this decision? Um, was it Israeli hearsay? Was it Israeli information obtained under duress? And I think, you know, just as UNRWA is being held up to be accountable, I think we have to hold the donors up to accountability and ask, what did Israel give you and did you independently verify? Because there's some Anthony Blinken quotes around today um, where basically he's saying, um, we have not independently verified this evidence, but by the way, we think it's very, very um, compelling and credible. Like, how do you know it's credible if you haven't independently investigated? I and mean, this is the stuff of political data, And if it weren't so deeply tragic, it would be funny. I mean, it's, it's really quite appalling. And by the way, if you'd let me just say one other thing. I mean, this organisation, Impact SE, which the, the 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 director of it was in Congress the other day, alongside various other people who've made, you know, crazy and sometimes crazy and sometimes irrational and, and unsubstantiated claims against government. That organisation, Impact SE, in 2019, they went, you know, on a big PR... Um, campaign against UNRWA the textbooks, and they said that these enrichment materials. So UNRWA checks all of its textbooks, and where there's um, a tiny percentage, three to four percent of problematic material, which isn't all, by the way, political neutrality questions. Sometimes it's age-appropriate violence, sometimes it's gender issues. But basically, UNRWA r- produces enrichment materials that teachers can use instead of the textbooks in the classrooms. It's all policed, and the, the teachers are trained, whatever. So Impact SE got hold of apparently got hold of some UNRWA. Enrichment materials and said, This is all, it's it's full of anti Semitism and preaching violence. And when we started to look at it, this was in the the summer of 2019, it wasn't UNRWA's material. So, this organization that's been briefing Congress people is the same organization that came up with allegations, and it was the wrong curriculum. And I mean, you know, a few years before it, when it had a different name, um, it was making accusations against the PA textbooks. So in Gaza and the West Bank, UNRWA uses PA textbooks. And it came out with all these allegations about the textbooks, the PA textbooks. It turned out these were Jordanian and Egyptian textbooks. And by the way, this is the same organization that went on a political campaign to try and block the Palestinians joining UNESCO, the UN's education, scientific and cultural organization, where they would have had support with curriculum development. So this organization that claims to want to have, you know, improved curricula around the Middle East actually blocked, attempted to block the Palestinians joining UNESCO. I mean, there's a clear political agenda. Their information is methodically shoddy. And many, you know, Nathan Brown, for example, an absolutely brilliant educationist at Georgetown University, you know, he has looked at these accusations and I mean, a long time ago, but basically, you know, he's found that UNRWA textbooks by and large are, are, are acceptable and that the, the mitigating steps UNRWA takes to deal with these problematic texts are also sound and well applied. So I'm afraid to say to Israel, you know, UNRWA is your best friend in Gaza. I mean, after what you've been doing, UNRWA might not see it that way. But if you want to have an education system which has the highest possible standards of neutrality to the satisfaction of Israel's major donors, the US, Britain, the Europeans, then you need to stick with UNRWA. Because reinventing UNRWA is simply not possible, both in practical terms, as I've explained, but also in terms of inculcating neutrality standards, which UNRWA's done, you know, since, since, May since May 1950, when we became operational in the Middle East, um, you know, UNRWA has been doing that. So, you know, UNRWA actually, though, Israel doesn't realize is the best friend it ever had in Gaza, and it really needs to wake up to that reality.
1: Chris Gunness, former UNRWA spokesperson, you know, I'll never forget the time 2014, 10 years ago, when you broke down crying about an Israeli attack on an UNRWA school in Gaza. What a powerful moment that was.
5: The rights of Palestinians, even their children, are wholesale denied. And it's appalling. <clears throat> My
1: What a powerful defense of your former organization you've just given us. So, thank you so much.
5: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime. Be well. Bye -bye. bye.
0: Well, that was really great.
1: Chris Gunn is very grateful to him. He joined us with very little notice, so thank you Chris and thank you for your stalwart defense of your noble organization. And just when you thought that this genocide could not get just any more barbaric, the Biden administration never ceases to amaze. You know, turning around and cutting funding to the agency that keeps Palestinian refugees alive. And as we heard from Chris Gunn, this is a campaign that goes on that 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 long predates the current assault on Gaza.
0: Yeah. Uh, Also, shout out to Brett Stevens for just uh, saying the quiet part out loud, writing an op-ed in the New York Times, abolish the UN's Palestinian refugee agency. Thank you, Brett Stevens, for that. And a sincere shout out, though, to Spain, which is refusing to defund UNRWA. So thank you, Spain. Good for Spain.
1: Wow. Good for
0: Spain. Yeah, they've been pretty good on this. We're going to bring on our next guest, Steve Sosby. He founded the Palestine Children's Relief Fund in 1991 and was the CEO and president until 2024. And in January of 2024, he founded Heal Palestine, a nonprofit focused on responding to the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. So here's Steve. Steve, thank you so much for joining. I wanted to start off by asking you what brought you to Palestine in the first place?
2: So um, actually, just to take a step back, I actually went to Palestine first as a student activist. And then uh, having gone during the first year of the first uprising back in December of 1988, I went back and started working as a journalist with the intention of sharing stories um, to try to educate Americans about what was happening on the ground. From what I saw, not uh, the reality of what was actually happening and what I experienced going there firsthand and what um, people um, were conveyed, the information was being conveyed, the reality was being conveyed through the media in the United States, um, were not the same thing. So I thought hopefully working as a journalist, I'd be able to uh, educate Americans particularly on how um, the occupation was affecting the daily lives of common people. And in the course of working as a journalist, I started to meet a lot of injured children who needed medical care. They could not get uh, within the local health system um, and arrange for children to start coming to the United States for free medical care. And in the course of uh, bringing those kids and getting them treatment, I realized I needed an organization to facilitate that work um, it was becoming, you know, something that was taking all my time, and and I didn't have the resources. I was in my early twenties um, to manage this effectively. So I started a nonprofit called the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, and uh, started to build uh, an organization to um to bring kids over. And then the organization expanded significantly over the years. Um, I must say um, that the big support came from a lot of people externally to help me get going in those early years, not the least of which. Was uh, my late wife, Hud al Masri, who uh, we got married in 1993 in January. But even in the early years before that, in the year before that, she was actively involved as a social worker and uh, deserves much credit and respect for the organization being able to get going in those early years.
0: And what is the effect right now of this genocide on the children of Gaza? And oh what gosh. have you, you've been there, right? Recently, yeah. or are you uh, going there? And-
2: Right. I'm, I'm actually waiting for my permit. So I have a Palestinian ID. So being able to enter Gaza, uh, the Israelis put a different kind of restriction on people going in who have hawias, it's called IDs. Um, and that uh, puts different restrictions on being able to come out. So as long as I'm able to go in and go out without significant restrictions, I'm planning to go in two weeks or around the 13th. But to answer your question, of course, you know, we have operations going on on the ground there. And I'm very much aware of as we all are to different extents, what the circumstances are uh, facing children in Gaza. And I mean, needless to say, it's dire beyond anything um, we've seen, Uh, even in modern history, to be honest with you. And when I mean that, I'm not trying to compare it to every every conflict's unique in its own way, but in particular, this one in Gaza is unique in the sense that people have nowhere to go Uh, in Syria and Iraq and Ukraine. Uh, in other conflict areas where uh, civilians were being under the barrage of bombings and of um, um, you know risk of death, um, they could flee and not you know not easily. And as we saw in Syria, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of refugees died in the Mediterranean trying to flee. Um, but in the case of just immediate safety, getting out of harm's way of bombings and and uh, the destruction that's all around in Gaza, there there's nowhere to go and there's no safe areas. And that, as a result, has we've seen over 10,000 children killed uh, since October 7th. And uh, keeping in mind that that's 1% of the entire population of children in Gaza, so not insignificant, to say the least. And we also see over 30,000 children with significant physical injuries, many of them permanent um, amputees and, and so on. And that also is putting a huge, huge uh, burden on the health system, which is collapsing because there's really only one functioning hospital right now, the European Gaza Hospital in Han Yunus, which I've worked in for many, many years and um, know that hospital very well. It does not have the capacity at all to manage what the trauma that they're seeing and forget the fact that people who have medical conditions that require um, interventions, people with heart conditions, people with car accidents, people who have congenital malformations or need any of the common ailments that come up in a normal society, they're not getting treatment at all. And uh, so the casualty toll that we talk about, which is based strictly on the numbers of people being killed by bombs and through trauma as a result of the the attacks and the ongoing conflict on the ground. You're, those statistics do not include the thousands of people who are not able to get adequate medical care for common non-trauma related ailments, and in many cases, those people are dying. And they're also victims because you know we were able to treat those patients previously. By bringing in volunteer medical teams, we uh, we were doing hundreds of missions a year into Gaza and into the West Bank. And those missions are all stopped as a result of the conflict on the ground, of course. And all those patients that we were treating for open heart surgery, for neurosurgery, for cancer and so on, are not getting treatment locally and they need to go outside for care. And in the case of those going outside for care, it's extremely difficult to get permits for injured and sick children to travel outside for treatment. Even if you arrange their treatment, which we're doing uh, in Heal Palestine, we're arranging treatment for injured children and ch- sick children um, to get treatment outside for free. Getting them out is really the biggest challenge we're facing. And that's uh, it's very difficult to overcome that challenge. But the biggest ch- issue now is not necessarily the immediate health needs of kids on the ground in Gaza, although that's immense and that cannot be um, you know ignored uh, at all. Uh, but the bigger challenge is starvation and hunger. And now we see hundreds of thousands of children um, suffering from the lack of food. 90% of the population there goes at least one day without eating at all. And we're talking about children. As you all know, 40% of Gaza are children under the age of 15. And Keep in mind that there are literally hundreds of trucks full of food on the Egyptian side of the border, ready to come and feed uh, children who are showing signs of malnutrition and going uh, undergoing the early stages of starvation. Um, so this is strictly a man-made problem. And the fact that food's being used as a weapon of war in this modern era of 2024 is really unconsciousable. And it's it's hard to imagine that this is taking place in front of the world's eyes and that nothing's being done to stop it
0: what is the possible justification for not letting in food or something else that's happening now which is absolutely horrible to think about is people are being operated on without anesthesia what is the possible justification or or with, and t- chemotherapy is no longer getting through right what is the possible justification yeah. for that what are they saying
2: well I'm, I, I i i don't know if there is a stated justification for it it's a, it's definitely a policy Um, I'm sure there are security issues of checking the trucks, um, you know, to ensure that they're not filled with uh, arms and and military um, needs. But uh, we all know that prior to October seventh, there were 500 trucks entering Gaza a day, and those trucks were also undergoing security review at uh, Karam Shalom, so uh, crossing in southern Israel. So as a result, I mean, I don't think there's a justification that there's too much of a load to adequately. um, review and and to check, um, so there is a political purpose behind it. I, I, you know, I, I, I think you'd have to review the Israeli stated media. I mean, what the politicians are saying in the Israeli media and Israeli press to kind of understand what the justification are. I know that there are now protests uh, among Israelis that is in some cases being encouraged by some ministers in the far right government um, to block uh, the trucks coming into Gaza, and that's really unimaginable because. You know you have kids starving, and you know these are not combatants, they're not Hamas. they're not people who committed any crimes on October seventh against the Israeli people. They're innocent children. But to come to the realization in your mind that these are somehow justified people who are guilty of any crimes when they're just three, four, five year old children, newborn babies, I don't understand it. I don't think anybody understands it, but it's it's what's happening. And uh, it's affecting all of us. It's affecting everybody on the ground in Gaza, and all of us as aid organizations trying to respond to this crisis in a way that can hopefully impact the lives of these people in a positive way.
0: You have children. Um, are you afraid? I mean, just you, not just because you're a father, but I, I would assume that gives you extra fear. Are you afraid for your own safety about going to Gaza?
2: I mean, I never have been before. I've been going to Gaza since nineteen eighty-eight. I've been there hundreds of times. I've never had any fear at all going there. In fact, you know, when I was there a few months ago, I was, you know, had a car and was driving by myself around the Gaza Strip and you know, in, in every refugee camp and and all over the place. So I never felt any personal fear from anyone. But I think if the fear now would be that the bombing campaign seems to be indiscriminate. And um, that, you know, you could easily be near a hospital or near a UN school full of uh, displaced people, many of them children, and still, um, you know, be hit by a, a bomb or something like that. So as a result, there there is some concern about, you know, one's personal safety. But, you know, I think you go into this kind of work with the idea that you have a greater um uh, mission in your life, you have a responsibility to the the cause and the people you're serving. And I don't think throughout history any positive change has happened by um, people who are putting their lives ahead of the cause. Um, that's not to say I'm j- jumping into something recklessly and I'm I'm a, a you know a, a danger addict or somebody who is careless with my own personal safety. But you know I run a relief organization. There is a genocide going on. There are people who need help there are injured children that we need to help there are uh, hospitals that need medical supplies there are uh, people who can't get the basics to survive and if i have a responsibility to help them and also to show them solidarity and that you know we are not everybody is um you know on the side of 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 having their children's lives taken so carelessly and, and so graphically um hopefully that'll you know show some element of humanity and
1: support that will keep them going as human beings on a human level Stephen, you've helped a lot of children in palestine uh can you tell us a story of someone who who either you've helped in the past or someone who you're looking to help now
2: yeah well i'll tell you the story of izzedine who was uh, 16 years old uh, in 2018 when um, he was part of the great return march demonstrations which were taking place at the gate, at the walls of Gaza, these were mainly refugee youth who were going to demonstrate about, uh to demonstrate to the world that they were still refugees and they wanted to return to their homes and and uh, mandate Palestine and what is now the state of Israel. Um, Izzedine, uh, having lost his leg, came to our organization and uh, we were able to arrange for him treatment in the U.S., where he received a prosthetic leg and learned to walk again. And I remember taking him back home, uh, on a flight. He was a very sweet boy. Uh, always smiling, very polite. And, um, and that when he went back home, I started a program to employ amputees in our organization as field workers, to give them opportunities to have a future and to gain some self, uh, element of self-esteem and, and independence. Uh, that was really our goal uh, is came in as a photographer. So we, um, put him with our, um, content creation crew the guys who were doing our social media and in the field kind of documenting our work and he just flourished i mean he was so happy to have an opportunity he never thought that he would be able to do something uh you know with his life that he liked doing and that he gave him some income and uh for the last year or so he was uh just kind of like taking off and then uh when the uh, on october 7th when the the um, war started Uh, I was in touch with him and, you know, just encouraging him to stay safe and not to worry about work, but to really focus on his family and and staying out of harm's way. But on December 25th, on Christmas day, his home was hit by an airstrike and him and his entire family were killed. And it's just, and I've had those stories with several kids that we've brought out for medical care, children that have come to the States for certain congenital defects or Um, you know, we had kids, two boys who had maxillofacial deformities of their faces and came to Louisiana for uh, significant uh, reconstructive surgery. They were both killed in a home bombing uh, back in early November. And these were just 13, 12-year-old boys. So you develop ties and relationships with the kids we treat. I I have, and hundreds of them. And then their lives are just, um, you know, destroyed in in a brief moment. And it's really sad and tragic. And you don't see an end in sight, and it, for somebody like Izzedine, um who was so young and so full of life, and always smiling, and despite you know having lost his leg, and he was for the rest of his life a cripple, he was pursuing his dream, and and then to see his entire family killed in a bombing of his home in a refugee camp, the you know just the whole trajectory t- trajectory of his life being born into a refugee camp in Gaza being permanently injured to the point where you know the rest of his life he had to wake up in the morning and put an artificial leg on to be able to walk um and then an organization coming in and giving him a chance for a better life and to be mobile and be independent and then to have all that destroyed um you know this, this is the story of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza he's he's just one of of thousands and uh it, every single one of them is very sad and and um, tragic.
0: And what is the uh, effect of UNRWA defunding on the children of Palestine?
2: Oh, it's amazing. It's significant. UNRWA is the government for the gov- provides government services. I guess, for you know, Gaza is seventy percent refugees from nineteen forty eight, and all of those refugees receive basic humanitarian uh, services from UNRWA. And the case before October seventh, that included education the schools that are now full of displaced people, those are UNRWA schools for the most part. Um, and then they were receiving food, they were receiving health care, primary health care, which, uh, you know, again, is for the most part closed down. Um, but UNRWA is just one of the main life sources for the va- hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinians inside the Gaza Strip, who without UNRWA would not be able to, to survive. So, you know, there's no Palestinian government providing them those services. There's no other aid agency on the scale of UNRWA that can come in and provide food, education, and health services for the refugee population there. So, to defund them, um, to take away that critical uh, element of humanitarian support that they're providing at this time um, is just beyond uh, on any form. I can't just understand it. If anyone within UNRWA as employees, and they have 30,000 employees in Gaza, uh, participated in the terrorist attacks on um, October 7th, um, I don't think that that's a reflection of any kind of uh, official company policy on the part of UNRWA. Those are the acts of individuals. And it's very hard to be responsible for uh, people when you're a company or an organization of 30,000 employees, and and especially in the condition that people live in in Gaza. So um, it's just uh, it's a political effort it's not a security issue and uh, the people who are suffering are going to suffer from it are the same people who are suffering now the poorest most marginalized uh, and vulnerable people in gaza which are the refugee children and there's hundreds of thousands of them
0: as someone who's worked with doctors and has seen how uh, important medical care is for children What do you have to say to the doctors in Israel, the doctors who signed a letter calling for more bombing?
2: I mean, it's hard to imagine a physician who takes the Hippocratic oath to, you know, do no harm um, would support uh, violence in any form. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, and you know, we are all very much aware of, uh, we should be aware of, the tradition um, of kind of the most basic. Jewish human humanitarian and humanistic ideals. I mean, in the United States, the forefront of the civil rights movement, social justice change has always been led by the Jewish community, or at least a big, big, significant part of it. And um, you know, they walked with uh, Martin Luther King. They, you know, that gave their lives um, to deal with social justice issues in this country um, and all over the world, and have been persecuted terribly as a result. And to now see that, you know, and I'm not saying that this has anything to do with Jewish values, but to see doctors in Israel who are calling for um, continued violence. And we see what that violence means. It's not really having a military effect on Hamas as much as it is resulting in the death of innocent people. 70% of all deaths in Gaza are women and children. So it's just unimaginable. Um, but I think the deeper question is, where is this coming from? Where is this deep-seated hatred or anger. And I mean of course some of it comes from what happened on October 7th that we all know how horrific that violence was but you know I don't think that physicians are beyond the ability to contextualize and and compartmentalize these issues in the sense that things don't happen in a vacuum and that we need to be able to define our reaction in a way that doesn't harm innocent people and if it is, if innocent people are being harmed Hopefully, um, nobody would find that to be a positive thing or to encourage more of that. I find it strange. I deal with a lot of Israeli doctors I have over the years. Um, I've always found them willing to help and very you know, uh, humanitarian in their values. Um, so I don't know who these doctors are, um, but we see a very... Um, worrisome trend in Israeli society. If you have people going down to the uh, border and trying to block aid shipments of food when children are starving and you hear, you see doctors, you see a, a, a conference, I think it was a couple of days ago in Jerusalem where, you know, literally a rally to settle Gaza with with settlements and on top of, of the rubble of, of people's homes. There is a very uh, worrisome trend in Israel that we haven't seen before, to be honest with you. Of kind of and it's everywhere in the world, but it's kind of very graphic right now in Israel with the right ring extremism and borderline fascism, which you know we have in the states as well. Uh, But in this case, um, you know the way it's being played out in Gaza is uh, the results are, um, you know, one percent of all children have been killed, one percent, and that would be if in the context of the United States population would be seven hundred. Imagine if seven hundred thousand children in the United States were killed, um, you know, through bombing campaigns uh, from a foreign uh, country, Um, you know, it would just be outrageous. So the fact that that's happening and that there are people who support that and encourage it and want to see more of it in a democratic society, in a liberal democratic, what was or traditionally has been a liberal democratic society is quite worrisome and it gives us a lot of, I think, fear for the future.
1: Steven, you founded the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Uh, You led it for uh, three decades. Now you founded a new group called Heal Palestine. Um, Talk to us about your new organization and how people can support it.
2: Yeah, thank you. So for 30 years, I was very proud of the work we did in PCRF. We built two pediatric cancer departments, one in the West Bank in the name of my first wife and one in Gaza. Um, We opened a lot of different Really incredible projects and programs. We brought hundreds of doctors, treated thousands of children. Uh, Very successful work. It inspired, you know, literally tens of thousands of people all over the world um, to get involved and be active. And we're very proud of that. But when this crisis began, and even before that, I was thinking about, you know, what I could do more than just within the health sector. Although that's an area that I want to continue to work in. Um, But I think there's a greater need to um, expand into areas that I think, you know, I could have an impact, I have 30 years of experience on the ground, in the West Bank and Gaza. I want to use that in the most effective way. And I felt within PCRF, um, that my ability from a leader and from somebody who's active on the ground, um, far exceeded what the organization's kind of scope is. So I wanted to broaden my impact and to have go into the area of education, um, where I think there's a huge need and, and there is definite, um, potential for positive impact. And then finally into the area of leadership. And when this crisis began, and we started seeing tens of thousands of permanently disabled children in Gaza, um, I felt this would be a great opportunity to build a program where we use the skills and support of literally thousands of mentors all over the world who could come in and take responsibility for helping to rebuild the lives of these children over the long-term. That means you know, mentoring them, Um, um, supporting them, uh, guiding them in areas where they could eventually become independent in careers, vocational training, education, uh, and guiding us as an organization to identify the needs of all these kids and ensure that we meet those, whether they're medical, uh, mental health issues. And as we said before, um, eventually getting to the point where they have career uh, options ahead of them and that we're gonna come in and help support those options. Um, So that's where, uh, and and literally we have uh, outside of Palestine, uh, one of the most uh, developed uh, uh, diaspora communities of executives, of doctors, of engineers, of accountants, of professional people um, who are looking for more opportunities to serve their cause and to do something positive for their people rather than just either protest or uh, write checks. Um, and those are important things to continue to do as well. Um, but I think, you know, not tapping into that resource of talent um, that we can utilize to help rebuild the lives of these children whose lives are being destroyed. Um, I think as we're missing a great opportunity to build a grassroots organization that really um, utilizes um, a a kind of a new way of effective, impactful change. And uh, by linking the communities abroad with the need on the ground, particularly in the human sphere of rebuilding the lives of these tens of thousands of children who are you know facing a very dim future uh, and uh, you're know, on the brink of hopelessness if not are already deeply embroiled in it um then we're not doing all that we possibly can as i think creative relief people who can use more importantly the tools of technology and our communities abroad to make positive change for now and more importantly for the long term so that's really why i left pcrf and started something new i thought there was a lot more that i could do and there's a lot more that our communities could be doing than what PCRF was giving people, as great as the organization uh, as it is, and I was very proud of you know founding the organization and leading it for thirty years. Um, there's much more I think I could be doing, and I'm I'm excited about that opportunity.
0: Any final words that you'd like to share? Thank you so much for your generous time.
2: Thanks for having me. Of course, I mean I think at this point we all know what's happening in Gaza. There aren't any secrets about what's really happening, and the effect of this war on the civilian population there. What we have to do is people who care about humanity. You don't have to be Palestinian or Muslim or Arab um, to actually see this as a crime against humanity. And what we have to do is find positive ways that we can help rebuild and repair the lives of these innocent people. Um, my experience in Gaza for over 30 years is there are some of the most kind, generous, resilient, and just very, very decent people who I've never had a negative interaction with uh, in my life and to just see their entire lives destroyed um, is very, very saddening. And I think all of us have a responsibility to help rebuild um, and to help show them love and compassion uh, and to give them opportunities to um, for them to, to heal. And um, that's what my goal is for the rest of my life. And um, I hope that this war will end soon, that there will be a ceasefire, that we can have some kind of larger political resolution to this issue it's time for that this can't continue the way it has for the past 50 60 70 years there has to be some equality and dual national identity in the land of israel palestine um, where people can live side by side in security and also as equal and have their identity secured as well and um, i think that's critical if we're going to find ever peace there. It's a beautiful land. I love living there. I love working there, Um, but I'm very, very concerned about the future uh, if this situation continues.
0: Thank you so much, Steve Sosby, for your time.
2: My pleasure. And your your work. Keep up your good work as well. We really appreciate it. God bless you.
0: And that was Steve Sosby who does such important work and is so fearless and compassionate and it must be heartbreaking to do the work that he does.
1: I can't even imagine. And uh, very humbling to speak to a genuine humanitarian who devotes their life to helping other people. I mean, Im- imagine the heartbreak of this current moment, all the people who Steve has helped going through so much unspeakable horror and you know, building hospitals and clinics and, and seeing all that attacked by Israel
0: bombed into smithereens or the children that he helped save and give chemotherapy to who survived cancer and then were killed in bombings or who will be killed through starvation. But we've already seen, he's posted on Twitter, very sad, moving things, showing the kids who his organization literally helped save from cancer only to be then bombed by Israel. It is so inhumane and unconscionable and people really are going to look back at this time and say how the hell did this happen how were people silent in the face of it
1: a very depressing episode of useful idiots but the least we can do is bear witness and that's what we try to do in this moment and um may it come to an end asap it has to end it's just it's unbelievable
0: and given how important this episode is, none of it will be paywalled, so everyone will be able to see it. And our very generous Substack supporters and subscribers will get, of course, as always, the Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness. So we're not leaving you behind.
1: All right, Useful Idiots Podcast dot com is our website. Go there to support the show and get bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.